You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining me online today is State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties in the city of Hudson and Lenawee County. We're going to jump right in with the big headline story that we're going to talk about today. It has to do with House Bill 4001 and the huge state income tax decrease. Our listeners might be tired of hearing about it, but there's always news on this huge topic of conversation uh, and has been this entire legislative season uh, as the debate continues. State law passed under Republicans in 2015 states that if there's a large enough sustained budget surplus, there will be an automatic tax cut. Well, we're now in such a situation. The current tax rate is 4.25% and will be dropping to 4.05%. Governor Whitmer and Democrats in the legislature were displeased with the potential for an income tax cut and worked to use House Bill 4001 to stop it. Of course, in the end, the bill passed without those provisions that would stop the tax decrease. But now that the tax cut is happening, the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, released and publicized an opinion just over a week ago. In the five-page opinion, she wrote the following, quote, An individual income tax rate reduction is temporary, i.e. for one year only. And if the income tax rate for a particular year is reduced under the 2015 law, it returns to 4.25% in the subsequent year. Now, of course, part of the negotiations for House Bill 4001 was under the belief that the tax decrease was, in fact, permanent. So the timing of Nestle's opinion weeks after the package was finalized, negotiated, and became law uh, is certainly interesting. But Representative Fink, you're an attorney. Uh, You've... I imagine looked at the law. What do you see? Do you think the attorney general has a point or is she wrong on the law? Well, Josh, uh, and hi, thanks for having me on, uh, as, as always. Yeah, I, I don't really think you need to be an attorney to analyze this question because it's not really that complicated. I don't have the text in front of me, but essentially what it says is that if revenues get to a certain point, then the tax rate is reduced. And the revenues have gotten to that point, and the rate uh, is supposed to therefore be reduced. What is not there is that it will be reduced for period of time as the revenues stay the same or anything like that. So if you were intending to, to make it a one-year only, you would, you would because, uh, because of the nature of this kind of you know, changing of a tax rate, you would probably need to have set it in a different way than just the rate will be reduced. And I'm not a big legislative history guy exactly in, in analyzing the meaning of uh, laws, but certainly if you think about kind of what the point of this legislation was from the perspective of the uh, authors of the legislation, you know, the people who were in the legislature at the time who supported it, they've all said, I mean, I've been universal from uh, the people that, that actually supported this change in the first place, that they believe it was you know, of course, intended, but also just is by the text a permanent rate change. And I guess the last thing I'd say about it is, and again, I'm not, I don't really mean to dwell too much on the history, but if you think about what the point of this legislative change just a few years ago in 2015 was, it was to to deal with the possibility that the state's revenues would increase more than intended as a result of a raising of the gas tax. And, you know, that was... It's, it's difficult, just um, historically, it's difficult to get a Republican legislature and governor to raise any tax, largely for fear that it will, you know, any increased revenue won't be used uh, wisely 
and in this case, they built something of a fail-safe into the, into the gas tax adjustment to prevent that problem from being exacerbated. So it seems to me that if you think about it uh, in terms of not just the text, but also the point of the legislation that we're reading, uh, you can really only come away with one conclusion. Now, if the governor and the legislature, uh, in which I serve but not in the majority, if their view is that next year they're going to uh, charge everyone about 5% more in state income taxes than they otherwise would, uh, then they want to make that case to the people. Uh, they are welcome to go around admitting that they want to raise everyone's taxes, uh, which is what I and others in, in the Republican minority were saying the entire time, and they were denying. I can find exchanges online where I was called a liar by some members of the other side for saying that this is that this whole scheme has been an attempt by the Democrats to raise taxes. But at this point, I guess even they've stopped pretending that that's wrong. And uh, so they are welcome to go around and explain this to everyone. And a huge part of the attorney general's argument is supposedly based on the history of the tax. But some, some of the Republicans have noted that the original analysis from the House Fiscal Agency back in 2015, which I actually have in front of me, says, quote, the trigger mechanism would result in a permanent reduction in the state income tax rate. So it seems at least at the time they, the guys helped you up at the legislature were telling legislators that it was going to be a, a permanent change. What, what do you see as the means to challenge the attorney general's opinion here? Because I mean, it, it would seem that as the attorney general, she really gets the final word. Yeah, I should add that the House Fiscal Agency, for anyone listening who isn't already aware, is a nonpartisan section of the legislature, meaning like the director doesn't change because the speaker changes from one part to the other or something like that. It's a it's a nonpartisan agency, and they, they said earlier this year as well that it's a permanent change. So that, that's been a consistent position, again, of a nonpartisan right. uh, entity. The attorney general doesn't exactly have the final word but what she has is is a word that is authoritative for departments of the government if there is no court interpretation which overrules her or, I suppose, a statutory clarification which overrules her on a question like this. So uh, litigation is likely to follow. I am told, I, look, I have not, you know, I'm, I'm not doing a lot of legal practice myself and don't have a client for whom this is relevant, and so I have not yet. Uh, seen this analysis, I'm told by some other attorneys uh, that they believe that the average citizen, the average taxpayer, might have an issue with the question of standing uh, in litigating this. I'm not sure I understand that, but it's. I'll just say I, I'm told that it may be more complicated getting a case into court than that. But I do expect that, that there'll be litigation about it in one form or fashion. Whether that's satisfactorily resolved from my perspective, you know, I don't know. And so as a matter of policy, I'm just going to continue to advocate for uh, the, the state legislature following through on the deal that, they, that the people were sold on in 2015, and that is that their income tax rate is supposed to be dropped. And so it will be next year, and it should be every year after that, unless, uh, unless the legislature is going to go out and take what most people would perceive as a hard vote to actually raise the income tax rate. But unless we do, I think that the income tax rate jumping back to 4.25% is illegitimate. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. Uh, I want to talk about uh, 
a recent hearing that you're at the House Committee on Economic Development and Small Business has a housing subcommittee, which met since we last spoke. Uh, and they had a presentation from Housing Michigan, a coalition of several groups, including the Michigan Municipal League and the Home Builders Association of Michigan. Uh, and they're presenting on zoning reform, uh, zoning reform toolkit, promoting 15 ideas here with many things from reducing minimum lot width and area to collapsing zoning districts, allowing uh, more uses, pre-approving plans, and a lot of other things. And this goes down fundamentally to just the issue of zoning. So I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this. What can you tell us just to start about the history of zoning and whether you think that there's a reason for some of the changes like suggested in this presentation from the coalition? Yeah, so, you know, we hear this term zoning a lot, and I think, well, at this point, there are very few Americans uh, who who have lived during a, a time when most cities, certainly most large cities, um, didn't use, haven't used zoning. It's been, at this point, something like 100 years since it became kind of in vogue to adopt, to begin adopting zoning. Um, and, you know, what zoning means, it actually is it's sort of as it, a concept as simple as it sounds, dividing the city up into a series of zones, and, and by the way, not just cities, in, in a state like Michigan where we have uh, actually most of the, I think a, a slight majority of the people in our state live in townships, and most townships are also zoned, or at least uh, the most populated townships are also zoned. So you divide the municipality up into a variety of zones, um, and uh, and then what you can use the land in those zones for varies depending on the zone, and and not just ultimately what, whether you can use the land for a given purpose, but what you must do in order to have permission from the uh, municipality to ex to use the land for that purpose, and what you must do to have that permission varies. So. Uh, a classic kind of example of it would be that a city will have some areas designated as residential where only residential uses are permitted. Uh, it will have an area designated as something like commercial, and it'll have areas designated as uh, industrial. And then oftentimes there are things that are sort of variants on these, like maybe a business park use, which might accommodate some light industrial, but probably not the heaviest industrial, as well as offices and things like that. And then, you know, ag or rural residential, or there's any number of other um, kind of categories. Part of the history of zoning is uh, it was sort of an attempt by people who already lived in, in cities to, they would probably say, maintain the character of the cities. And they, we hear this even today, that without this tool of zoning, a given city is uh, is unable to sort of keep it the place that it is for the residents that live there. Uh, and I guess what I what I would say is to kind of begin to get into like why reforms to the way we've done zoning have, are becoming kind of a popular thing to talk about. And an area that I've been very interested in is from a certain perspective, including my own, zoning often winds up being sort of an artificial limitation on property rights which also limits economic dynamism. In other words, the state or the, the, the city or the township has kind of determined what they think the highest and best use of a piece of property is, and a different use from that is not allowed. And that's just not really 
consistent with what I sort of think the government is actually good at, uh, which is providing general services that everybody can take advantage of, like policing uh, or potentially schools or something like that, knowing exactly what the best use of a given, you know, 40 by 60 foot piece of property is, is not like that. But secondly, there's been kind of a left-wing criticism of it that ties into the economic stagnation issue, and there's sort of a uh, a problem of, of zoning creating artificially high uh, land values because of the way that, that the use of it is restricted. And so if you want to build a given uh, sort of business or, or whatever, you have to find a piece of land that already fits that zoning description. But in addition, there's, there's a left-wing criticism, I guess you could say, that recognizes that a lot of early zoning wasn't just about sort of some kind of abstract stability for the community, but was actually in order to prevent um, different population groups, whether they be based on class or race, from moving into a, a neighborhood that was already established. So that's kind of the, the basics of what zoning is and, and where some of the criticism of it comes from. And I think that's why... Uh, there's be, there's forming what I would identify as kind of a left-right coalition around the idea that our zoning probably is not like it's not realistic to say Michigan's going to eliminate zoning. What is realistic is is to say that there's probably a consensus that we need to examine how much authority we've given to local governments to restrict the use of property uh, and what that authority is being used to do, whether it's really consistent with sound public policy across the state. Right. Well, and there's a lot of variation as far as, I mean, you laid out the different uses given by zoning, but even within that, you could say, okay, you know, within this neighborhood, sure, nobody wants a restaurant opening up in the middle of their residential neighborhood or, or some other commercial business is driving lots of traffic. But then they say, oh, well, you, but you have to be such and such feet from the road. You have to be such and such feet from the edge of the property line the the property itself has to be of a certain width and all of that, that there's this huge amount of, you know, even within what many people would consider reasonable regulations preventing, you know, a factory from opening up in a neighborhood say, well, but okay, should, shouldn't I be able to build a house that's as large as I want or, you know, close, you know, it doesn't have, yes. why, why does it have to be within all of these uh, regulations is that most of the reform that you're thinking about, or, or do you think that there's more that that the use itself is likely to get much much reform passed uh, in a bipartisan it's a, manner? It's a very very good question. Um, I think it's unlikely. Uh, I guess this is what I would say: is I haven't worked on a, on drafting any legislation that would. Uh, would interfere with a municipality's ability to restrict use in the sense that you're talking about, of kind of categories of use in a given zone. Um, and so, yeah, you're probably making a very sensible point here, Josh, that uh, there, there, are, there are ways to sort of alleviate the problem without, uh, without eliminating the entire uh, regulatory concept. A good example would be home size. So the point I, I would make is, you know, the although many, many large and happy families were raised in post-war, uh, you know, 900 to 1,300 square foot homes uh, across the, the country, right now uh, in the city of Hillsdale, for instance, a new, a new residential home has to be 1,000 square feet. And does that make sense 
for, say, you know, a 40-year-old with no children uh, and no uh, spouse, you know, or roommate or whatever, a person who's intending to live alone but wants to build a new home, does it make sense to require that person to, to make the home a 1,000 square feet? Um, that's the kind of one-size-fits-all that you don't have to disrupt the entire system of zoning in order to say that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense to me that a person couldn't build an 850-square-foot home that has every you know, necessary amenity that a person could want. There's no safety issue or even issue of comfort uh, with, with building a smaller home like that. It's just illegal because the number in the ordinance is 1,000. And that, that number of 1,000 is common. It's even larger in other places. You know, some places around the state, I think, have as, as high as like 1,250 for a minimum home size. Uh, similar issues with like types of construction material. At least one township in Michigan requires you to build a residential structure out of brick or wood or a substance that appears to be brick or wood, which would mean, for instance, that you couldn't build a primarily stucco house. Now, I have a feeling they don't actually enforce it if it's a nice-looking stucco house. Or, by the way, a stone house, although maybe they'd say that that's similar enough to brick that it counts. But you understand the point. The zoning restrictions can be so uh, detailed and overbearing and appear to be based, again, on some kind of a classism uh, that it prevents working families from getting the housing. And, and I guess that's really that's, that's, that's what got me interested in some of these ideas in the first place, is that Michigan does have a pretty severe housing shortage at this point. And I've been asked by people, I think it's a very sensible question, I've been asked in the past, how do you say there's a housing shortage when our population is stagnant? You know, it seems like it should be relatively stable. Of course, there is some deterioration of the housing stock we have, and the average home in Michigan right now is now over 40 years old. I think we're, we might be at 49 years old uh, right now. The average uh, residential structure is 49 years old, I think, right now. Maybe it's 41, but I think it's, I think it's almost 50. Um, but even so, we've been building under the, the market demand for new homes for so long that what we now have amounts to, to a, a severe shortage of probably, I would, I, would, I would estimate, I think this is a, a conservative estimate, a couple hundred thousand um, single-family dwellings. We're, we're, we're a couple hundred thousand behind where the market would be or would have been over the last 20 years. Um, especially since the you know the mortgage crisis of 2007, 2008. So, uh, which you know is a different contributor to why buildings slow down. But uh, but we are, have not caught back up, and so having any kind of onerous uh, or, or overly detailed regulation preventing someone from building a home for a Michigan family is not just uh, you know bad policy, but at this point it's irresponsible and even callous. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. Um, so up here at the college, the Political Economy Club Praxis hosted M. Nolan Gray, who's a city planner currently finishing his Ph.D. at UCLA. He's an affiliate scholar at Mercatus uh, and recently published a book on this issue, uh, Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. I wanted to mention that for any listeners who might be curious on the issue. Uh, the talk is up on the Internet, on YouTube. Uh, anyone who wants to look and go to uh, Hillsdale Praxis is the YouTube channel. Um, but Gray talked about the problem of NIMBY, the not-in-my-backyard idea. People like the idea of more housing, but they don't want it in their areas, so they, res- they support these restrictive zoning rules. Um, and so a lot of his focus is on the local governments. So uh, you've hinted at it, but when it comes to your role as a state legislator, you're not on PNZ or, or the Hillsdale, uh, City of Hillsdale's Planning Commission. Uh, so what exactly would you be looking at at the state level that would 
deal with some of these local zoning issues? Yeah, local governments derive all of their powers from those granted by the state. And so uh, the Zoning Enabling Act, the Michigan Zoning Enabling Act, is the act by which municipalities uh, are able to do zoning in the first place. And so for there to be statewide policy changes, it does need to be a legislative change, not just... I mean, it would be great if there was no need for it because the, the local governments adopted it one by one. Uh, but that would be uh, quite a different process than what I think is, is more practical, and that is altering the Zoning Enabling Act in ways that um, help the entire state to grow. I do think, and I should say, I don't know Mr. Gray, but I have uh, worked fairly closely with other members of, uh, of the Mercatus team on these issues. They've been very helpful to me in understanding what's been done around the uh, country and and what some options for uh, kind of liberalizing the, the essentially liberalizing the home building market from my perspective, but in this in this sense, liberalizing the zoning uh, regime to, to provide more options for, for property owners, and uh, and that I guess that would be kind of my answer is that that the the locals um, you know will they their their authority to zone and the and the limitations on it. Are legislative, and so uh, that's that's where the changes would would I think be most impactful is is in doing some state statewide changes. Mentioning California for by the way, um, over in California and Oregon, they've been confronting a housing crisis that is even more severe than Michigan's and has been going on longer. Of course, those are states that are dominated by what you could I think just as a matter of uh, of observation called left-wing governments, at least relatively left-wing governments, and yet they've still instituted some reforms that, again, I would say are actually more respectful of property rights than some that we've seen. Uh, one change that, that's become kind of popular that has a West Coast flavor to it is eliminating single-family zoning. So it's not a whole hog, you know, removal of the zoning, uh, the concept of zoning in the first place, but eliminating single-family zoning uh, and giving a person with a, a lot in a residential zone the power to build at least uh, two units on it. Or uh, a related idea would be that the, the zoning is still single-family, but that an accessory dwelling, think a mother-in-law apartment being converted uh, from a garage or an attic or a basement or even just a wing of the house, so that it's a separate dwelling, uh, that a person with a single-family home might have a, a by-right um, uh, permission to convert that and, and make an accessory dwelling unit. That kind of change is actually probably a little bit uh, harsher than some of the changes that I'm talking about. But because of how severe the problems in California and Oregon, especially the Portland area and Oregon, gotten, they've had to make changes that are, as I say, I would I would say more drastic than anything that I've talked about so far. Uh, actually proposing so uh, that is a good lesson. So you know, it's a good place to learn uh, of what happens if you don't think about these things ahead of time and you allow your housing shortage to stack up because eventually you're going to have to respond to it. And if the local governments, for instance, want to have more or less the same tools, then helping us make some adjustments like these, you know, lot, lot size adjustments or, or minimum home sizes or aesthetic building requirements or whatnot. So these are all pretty restrained and, and um, I uh, I would say more than reasonable changes to make. Uh, 
and 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 the alternative is probably more more uh, more significant change than that. Not no change at all. All right, I want to finish up our conversation here, talking about some actions that uh, the other branches of state government are taking here. Uh, talking about housing, the state strategic fund uh, has approved some projects out in Albion, $1.5 million grant to redevelop nine properties for 20 residential units uh, in downtown Albion. Kalamazoo is getting $1 million grant for mixed use development, 13 housing units out there. Um, but most of the Michigan strategic fund is giving out projects to support uh, local jobs. So I, I want to highlight the biggest ones. Um, $16 million is supposed to for, support 400 jobs. Um, 10 million is going to expansion of an automotive semi semiconductor facility out in Auburn Hills. And then, uh, several million dollars going to the expansion of EV fast charging manufacturing operations at four different locations, all in the Detroit Metro area. So we're looking at about $55,000 spent, uh, by the state per job. So when you're looking at those numbers, what are you thinking? Oh, sadly, uh, I actually think that that amount, did you say 50000 per? Yeah, 55000 Yeah, that's, that's actually slightly, not very different, but slightly better than the rate of return for the last several rounds of uh, so-called economic development uh, dollars spent per job. So I'm actually... Uh, uh, the cynic in me is sort of encouraged to say we're moving in the right direction. But this is, I think, just a, it's a problem inherent with, again, thinking, I mean, it does relate to the question, to the, to the topic we just talked about of, of the state or, or any level of government sort of determining ahead of time that they've got a plan, they've got it figured out, this is what the community needs, um, and, then, and then converting that into kind of an individual, you know, action on individual property, business, uh, project, whatever, uh, rather than just taking the basic approach of saying that the, the state needs to provide, you know, generally available resources by which all of us can thrive. And so I, I guess I think a lack of trust in that basic principle has driven the state over the years to make this mistake, uh, you know, more than once. And I, I would, I, w- I hope that the citizens are taking note and begin to push back on those who look at this form of economic development, as it's called, as the primary means by which Michigan will grow. I don't think that's ever been true, and I think at this point, as we've literally shrunk the last two years in, in just in, in nominal terms live here than did two years ago, um, that we should take this as a wake-up call and realize that we've got to have a much more robust approach to economic growth in our state if it's going to be the place where our kids and grandkids actually want to make their homes, raise their families, uh, and uh, serve their, their communities. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Representative Fink. You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh.